Good morning. Let's pray together. O Lord, most high, creator of the ends of the earth, governor of the universe, judge of all men, head of the church, savior of sinners, your greatness is unsearchable, your goodness infinite, your compassions unfailing, your providence boundless, your mercies ever new. We bless you for the words of salvation. How important, suitable, encouraging are the doctrines, promises, and invitations of the gospel of peace. We are lost, but in it you have presented to us a full, free, and eternal salvation. Weak, but here we learn that help is found in one that is mighty. Poor, but in him we discover unsearchable riches. Blind, but we find he has treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We thank you for your unspeakable gift. Your son is our only refuge, foundation, hope, and confidence. We depend upon his death, rest in his righteousness, desire to bear his image. May his glory fill our minds, his love reign in our affections, his cross inflame us with passion. Let us, as Christians, fill our various situations in life, escape the snares to which they expose us, discharge the duties that arise from our circumstances, enjoy with moderation their advantages, improve with diligence their usefulness, and may every place and company we are in be benefited by us. As your word is proclaimed this morning, Lord, may it accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. May you bless the preaching of your word unto the conversion of sinners and the edification of your saints. Be glorified in us now and always. We pray through Christ, our mediator. Amen. Now, for those of you who don't know me, I am Pastor Riley Taves with Grace Covenant Church, and it is my great privilege to be here bringing you the word of God this morning with uh, many of uh, my church family here as well. At GCC, over the last few weeks, we've been working through a mini-series on the mission of God in the world. Uh, We've been looking at, uh, we began by looking at what was God's original purpose uh, for the world as revealed through the creation and dominion mandate that he gave to mankind. And we saw there that man was called firstly to be, uh, to rule and to subdue, to exercise godly dominion, to be fruitful and multiply, uh, to fill the earth and subdue it. Essentially, as C. John Collins put it, The task was to begin in Eden and to spread the blessings of Eden over the face of the whole earth. Uh, The picture we get is the world being as full of the knowledge of God uh, as the waters cover the seas. Now man, of course, failed in this task, rebelled against God, and as a result, the world was brought under a curse and Satan received dominion. He and his angels, as Ephesians tells us, they are the rulers, authorities, principalities, and powers, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But as we worked through there, God did not abandon his creation. He did not abandon his original plan. Uh, Even as he was pronouncing the curse, God promised a deliverer. Genesis 3.15 Uh, RGBC, you guys have been working through Genesis. This should be be familiar to you. God promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And so the Old Testament then is essentially the unfolding of this promise. Uh, God revealing through covenant and kingdom, through prophecy types and shadows, what he intended to do in the world. And as we've seen, God's purpose was to redeem his fallen creation and to do so through his promised Messiah. 
Jesus Christ then came in fulfillment of these many promises and prophecies, faced down the same serpent, and where Adam failed, Christ did not. Jesus Christ took the curse upon himself. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus died, Hebrews 2.14, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Colossians 2.15 tells us that God has now disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. In his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus conquered sin, death, and Satan. He then gave a commission to his followers, declaring all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Christ died and rose again, and Scripture tells us that he is the Savior of the world. Colossians 1 verse 20, God in Christ was reconciling all things to himself, whether in heaven or on earth. Christ has bought this earth with his blood. The nations are his inheritance, Psalm 2 verse 8. And the Great Commission then is nothing less than Jesus telling his disciples, Go bring me my inheritance. The nations are mine. Go bring them, disciple them, teach them, baptize them. Bring the blessings of the gospel to the ends of the earth so that the world would eventually be as full of the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk 2.14. So this is the mission of God, to redeem his fallen creation, to bring it to its intended purpose. And so we come now to an important question, and that is, how does the church factor into this plan? Well, we should begin by noting that we must not conflate the church with the kingdom. These are two separate words in Greek. There is ekklesia as church, and it is basileia for kingdom. Uh, They are different. We must not confuse the two. While the church, of course, is part of the kingdom, and the church has an important role to play in the kingdom, it is not itself the totality of the kingdom. The Christian's calling, therefore, extends beyond the ministry of the institutional church. When we conflate church and kingdom, we arrive at the faulty notion that the only kingdom work to be done is that which in some way directly pertains to the institutional life of the church. We must understand that Jesus, being Lord of all, uh, and that we as kingdom citizens must order every aspect of our lives in obedience to Christ. And so we see when we live this way that everything that we do can and should be done in service to the kingdom of God. So the church must not be confused with kingdom. And although we must understand the church does have a very central role to play 
in the kingdom. That is, God intends for every kingdom citizen to be a committed and accountable member of a particular local congregation. That is the topic of our sermon this morning. We'll work through a number of texts to show that the individual Christian cannot obey many commands of the New Testament while living in isolation from the local church. We could say that from a biblical standpoint, there is no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. You cannot live a life of obedience to God while separated from the church. The New Testament everywhere assumes that all believers will be committed, serving, accountable members of particular local congregations. Let's turn in our Bibles to look at a few texts. Uh, For the sake of time, we will move fairly quickly. So we can turn with me firstly to Romans chapter 12, uh, reading from verse 4. Romans chapter 12, verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now the first thing for us to notice here is that the Bible itself uses the term member. Now I've heard some people object to the idea of church membership saying that this is not biblical, it's not found anywhere in scripture, Uh, to respond, firstly, I would say, as I hope to demonstrate this morning, that if you take seriously what the Bible says about how the church is to function in the life of the believer, you will conclude that some kind of functional membership is necessary. And the second thing I would point out is that the language of being a member of the body of Christ is found right here in the Bible. Romans chapter 12, right here in Scripture. Jesus is building his church, and if you are a Christian, you are a member. You are a part of the body of Christ, just as you have members of your body. So the next objection comes, says, well, oh, this is talking about the universal church. Christians are all members of the universal church, but we don't need to be members of individual or particular local bodies. Well, let's just look at the word. Uh, What is the connection between our membership in Christ's universal body and our participation in particular local congregations? We could ask it this way. Does the Bible share this belief that membership in the universal church will have no bearing on our involvement in particular bodies. Well, Romans 12 itself answers this. Look with me in the text. For as in one body we have many members, 
and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And then he lists a number of gifts, prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, etc. So notice Paul's point here. Just as our human physical bodies have various members, various body parts, and these parts do not all have the same function, right? they don't all do the same thing, so also, as members of Christ's body, we too have been given different functions, different gifts, different ways that we would serve to build up the body of Christ. Verse 6 lists a few of those gifts, right? Prophecy, service, teaching, and so on. We are all called as Christians, whatever our gifts, strengths, or abilities may be, to serve the body with those gifts. We are all required to build up the body of Christ. So just apply this to these gifts that are listed here. And I think we find a pretty clear answer to our question. Right? Prophecy, teaching, exhortation, leadership. To bring this back, who is the lone ranger Christian prophesying to? Who is he serving? Who is he teaching? Who is he exhorting? Who is he leading? So notice how this relates to the local body. You cannot use your gifts to build up the body of Christ if you are living in isolation from other believers. You cannot serve the body of Christ in the abstract. To build up the body with these gifts requires you to be living alongside other Christians. Members of the universal church, therefore, must join themselves to local congregations in order to function as Christ's body on earth. Now, this becomes quite obvious as well if you consider some of the commands related to life in the body of Christ. If we were to continue on here, look down with me in Romans chapter 12 uh, from verse 9. Paul writes, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. So we get a picture here of what God intends life in the church to be like. Notice that God's intention is for Christians to be living in community with one another. Just consider the language. We are to be a family of faith. Love one another with brotherly affection. 
We are to love one another in the church with a brotherly affection. You may have heard of the city of brotherly love. That comes from this Greek word here, Philadelphia. Uh, That is brotherly love. Phylos being a word for love. Delphoi being the brotherhood. Uh, Philadelphia, brotherly love. So we see this deep familial style affection, this kind of love that is meant to mark relations between members of the church. Love one another with brotherly affection. And so the members of your church should not just be random people that you happen to sit near once a week, like so many commuters on a bus. These are your brothers in Christ, your family of faith. We are united by faith into one body. We all have been cleansed by the same blood, indwelt by the same spirit, worshiping the same God with every part of our lives. What unites us is so strong and so much stronger than anything that would seek to divide us. We must reckon it so. In verse 15, we are called to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep. To build on that, Galatians 6 verse 2 tells us that we are to bear one another's burdens. Now just notice this again. We cannot do these things for our brothers and sisters if we are not part of each other's lives. Verse 13 We cannot contribute to the needs of the saints if we do not know what those needs are. Verse 16, we are called to live in harmony with one another. Can you truly say that you are living in harmony with people who are not a part of your life in any meaningful way? As members of Christ's body, We are to view ourselves as being individually members of one another. Verse 5. We are to view ourselves as one in Christ Jesus with our brothers and sisters in Christ. As members of his body, we are required to serve the body of Christ with our gifts. To love one another with a brotherly, familial affection. We are to bear one another's burdens sharing both in the sorrows and celebrations of our brothers and sisters. All of these things require us to be functional participants, in particular local congregations. You simply cannot keep these instructions while in isolation from the body of Christ. We need local congregations. We have a duty to one another. At GCC, we like to talk about trying to create a culture of discipleship. And what we mean by that is that we want to help everyone understand that as church members, as parts of Christ's body, we all have responsibilities to one another. Our Lord has commanded us that as his disciples, we are to love one another. And that means, therefore, we must want what is truly best for one another. Which means that we must desire and seek to contribute 
to the growth in grace of our brothers and sisters in Christ. To see them grow in sanctification, to grow into the likeness of Christ, to help them in their walk, to see them grow in holiness and love for God. We all, as members individually of one another, have responsibilities to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so every local congregation ought to be seeking to have a culture of discipleship, where everyone knows that they have a responsibility to everyone else. We see this commanded quite straightforwardly. Uh, 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, Paul writes to his young protege. He says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And similarly, in Titus chapter 2, <clears throat> the older women there are instructed to teach, uh, pardon me, to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. So notice here, discipleship is meant to happen in the church. Godly, older men and women have the duty of training, of teaching the younger men and women. So whichever you are, whether you are an older man or woman or a younger man or woman, and I will leave that to you to determine which category you belong in, you have a responsibility either to be discipled or to be doing the discipling. Either way, for this discipleship to happen, all Christians need to be part of local congregations, right? You will not be taught by those that you never see. You will not be teaching people that are not in your life. We need local congregations. Next point. So if you're taking notes, uh, so far what we've seen, number one, every Christian must be serving a particular local body with their gifts uh, and must view the church as a family of faith. Number two, every Christian must be engaged in discipleship within the local church. And we come now to number three, every Christian must be accountable to, particular, to a particular local congregation. You can turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. We'll start from verse 15. Matthew chapter 18, uh, verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. <clears throat> now, for the sake of time, we won't unpack everything here, but we see this is the basic process that Jesus gives us to follow when someone is caught in sin. So we are to begin by confronting them one-on-one, -on -one, if your brother won't repent, you are then to take two or three others with you, uh, most likely the elders of the church, 
who then have the duty of establishing the truthfulness of your charge, right? Nobody is ever convicted without uh, the proper uh, due process. Once the facts have been verified, then those witnesses will also call on this brother to repent, to turn from his sin. If he continues to be stubborn, they are then to tell the church, the church, who then would share in the duty of rebuking this man in his sin. And if he refuses to listen even to them, then you are to treat him like an unbeliever, Jesus says, a Gentile and a tax collector. And the main place you see this is that they will be barred from the Lord's table. The church could no longer affirm their profession of faith as it is being undermined by that sinner's stubborn refusal to repent of their sin. So notice what this requires. All believers must be accountable to particular local churches. We must all be in a position where our brothers and sisters could follow this process with us if we were caught in some sin. Notice the third step in the process is to tell the church. Now that obviously is not the universal church, right? Paul did not mean for the the local congregations to write letters to every church across the world telling them of this man's sin, right? For us in our day, we're not to go post this on Facebook, right? But the third step in the process is to tell the local congregation, to tell it to the church members whom this brother has been serving with his gifts, whom he has been involved in discipleship, where he has been viewing these people as family. That congregation is to call, is to join in calling this brother to repentance. So we see Jesus simply assumes his followers will be accountable to particular local congregations. So the Lone Ranger Christian, the one who says they don't need any commitment to any particular body, I ask you this, where are you accountable? If you were to fall into sin, which local body could help you by holding you accountable in this way? Right? Which local body are you a part of so that you can help in holding others accountable? Notice that duty goes both directions. All Christians must be part of local congregations that they are accountable to and where they will participate in holding others accountable. And this means as well that we must be living closely enough with our church family that they would actually know if we have fallen into some sin. We must remember that with everything that God commands, he commands it for our good. These are for our benefit. Accountability, you know, we, we kind of get scared of the idea of church discipline, right? We've maybe heard of bad examples where it hasn't been handled well, and it kind of becomes one of those you know, boogeymen we don't want to think about or talk about. But if you go to scripture you see that accountability is one of the blessings that God intends for his church. It is one of the means that he uses to keep people walking on the right path. It is a great blessing to have people around you who would love you enough to rebuke you, 
rather than watch you get destroyed by your sin. It is a great blessing to have a group of believers who are committed to your sanctification and growth. A group of believers around you who love you enough to risk offending you for the sake of your holiness. God commands these things for our good. To continue with the theme of accountability, we see also in Scripture that all Christians are required to be in submission to their church leaders. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Hebrews 13, verse 17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. All Christians are required by God to obey and to submit to their church leaders. That is, their elders, pastors, overseers, whatever the word is you like to use there. And so this text, again, poses a very strong challenge to the Lone Ranger Christian who thinks that he can fulfill what God requires of him apart from involvement or commitment to any particular local congregation. So here's the question for him from this text. Which leaders are you submitting to? Are you obeying this biblical command? Who are your elders? Who are your church leaders? I am convinced that if you are not a committed part of some local congregation, it is not possible to obey this command. And notice the flip side of the coin here. Look to the text. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Now here is a weighty text for pastors. And note as well, scripture doesn't distinguish between the paid pastors and the volunteer, the the lay elders. This is the reality for all elders, for all shepherds. God will hold us to account for the souls that were entrusted to our care. You know, the story goes of a young pastor who was chatting with his mentor, and he was complaining, he was frustrated that the congregation he had was quite small. You know, he wanted bigger things for himself. And his mentor smiled and said, when God calls you to give an account of those souls entrusted to your care, you will think you had enough. So notice the two sides to this coin. Christians must be accountable to their leaders because their leaders will be held accountable to God. God will hold them to account for the souls entrusted to their care. So here is another major reason for why membership is so essential. If God is going to hold me accountable for the souls entrusted to my care, I need to know who those souls are. The shepherd needs to know which sheep are part of his flock. 
right? Are you part of this congregation? Are you among the souls that God will hold me and my fellow elders accountable for? Are you among the souls that God will hold Pastor Shedder and his fellow elders accountable for? If we are going to have to answer to God for the souls entrusted to us, we need to know who those souls are. Membership of some kind is therefore necessary as we need some means, some means of marking off the body. Shepherds need to know who their sheep are. All right, next point. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, 1 and 2, Paul gives young Pastor Timothy a weighty command. He says here, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now, by looking at what pastors are required in Scripture to do, we get a very good picture of how the church is meant to function in the life of a Christian. Right? So we see if Pastor Timothy here is required to preach the word, to patiently reprove, rebuke, uh, to reprove and rebuke in his teaching, then it follows that his congregation has a corresponding duty to hear the word preached to be reproved, rebuked, and exhorted, to sit under the teaching of their pastor. Once again, it does no good if Timothy is preaching to an empty room. Right? His congregation must be there to hear him preach. A couple more texts, still looking at how the church is to function in the life of a Christian. Ephesians 5 verse 19 instructs us to be addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So notice here who Paul says is being addressed in our singing. While, of course, we are singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in praise to God, we are also, as Paul mentions here, to be addressing one another. Addressing one another in our singing. So notice as well, this is not something that you can do through Zoom. This is not something you can do at home by yourself. What is required for us to be addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? Well, firstly, we must be gathered together. And secondly, this one might be unpopular, we must be singing loudly enough that the people around us can hear, right? Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You can't do that in a whisper. And this again highlights one of the major errors that I believe has worked its way into the contemporary church. Many churches view their congregants as consumers, right? They think of the people who come to church as being the customers. And as the business world has taught us, The customer is always right. If we want our customers to keep coming back, we must cater to their needs. We must give them what they want. We must seek after what makes them comfortable. 
Now, the major problem with this is that if we went to Scripture to try to identify who the true consumer of worship is, the only acceptable answer would have to be God. God is the one to whom we are bringing our worship. We are coming together not to do what makes us comfortable, but to offer to the living God a sacrifice of praise that will be pleasing in his sight. And so we worship him as he has ordained. Worship, therefore, singing included, must be done in the way that God has ordained, not according to our own preferences. And I believe this will likely require a shift in thinking for many of us. And that is, we must view ourselves as participants in worship, not as consumers. And as this relates to everything in the church. We are active, not passive. We have a role to play in worship, in singing, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. When we pray, we pray corporately. The congregation prays along in their hearts with the words that are spoken from the front, and I believe ought to show their agreement with the prayer by adding their own hearty amen. When the word is preached, we are active listeners, and we are in fact worshiping God by being attentive to his word and his ministers. You can view how you listen to the sermon as a part of your worship to God. And that brings us to our last, our last text for this morning, uh, 1 Corinthians 11. I won't read it all for you. Uh, but basically, Paul here writes to rebuke the Corinthian church for their abuse of the Lord's Supper. An ordinance that was meant to bring the church together, to bind them together, was actually doing the opposite. It was causing division in the body through their misuse. Some people were coming to the Lord's table trying to fill their, be- their bellies on the bread. Others were getting drunk on the communion wine, and some people were left with nothing at all. It was a mess. And so Paul rebukes them, explains how the Lord's Supper is meant to function, and then gives his concluding remarks in verse 33. Let's read together. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance given to the church. And as we see from this text, it is meant to bring the body together. The Corinthian church was rebuked and they needed uh, and told that they needed to take the Lord's Supper together. It was not meant to be an individualistic thing, but a corporate sacrament a glorious picture of the gospel and of the unity of the church made up of members of Christ's body who are all partakers of the same body and blood of Christ. The Lord's Supper, therefore, must not be taken by yourself at home. You must be with the church so that you can obey this instruction. Come together to eat and wait for one another. Now there's a lot more that we could look at in scripture, but I think we get the point here. 
drawing from these passages, we can put together something of a picture of how the church is intended to function in the life of the believer. To summarize what we've seen this morning, we are called to be joined in brotherly love and fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Our local congregations ought to be gatherings of saints with whom we are living in harmony. People whom we are serving with our gifts, whatever those gifts might be. They are to be people with whom we rejoice in times of celebration and with whom we weep in times of sorrow. Within our family of faith, we are called to bear one another's burdens, to contribute to one another's needs. We are called to be involved in discipleship, either in discipling others or being discipled ourselves. And as part of this, we are to be accountable to one another. We have the responsibility of holding others accountable through church discipline and ensuring that we are in a position where we can be held accountable as well. In our corporate worship, we are to be singing, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We are to be observing the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper together. We are to sit under the faithful preaching of godly church elders who have been assigned with preaching, teaching, exhorting, rebuking, correcting, shepherding, and teaching. We are to be submitting to our leaders as those who will have to give an account to God for our souls. So I hope we see by now that for all of these things, for us to fulfill them as scripture describes, are things for which we need local congregations. You cannot obey these commands apart from local bodies. And many of them, I believe, cannot be fulfilled without some kind of functional membership. A commitment to a particular local body in which we will be active participants. And so we must keep in mind that everything God commands, he commands for a reason. If we trust in the character of God, then we will believe with all of our hearts that everything God requires, he does so for good reasons. God is neither arbitrary nor malicious. His commands are always aimed at his own glory and the good of his people. When we consider the mission of the church, we have a great high calling. We have the opportunity to participate in the expansion of the world-conquering kingdom of God. Jesus Christ gave his people a mission, and on every level, it is not a mission we can fulfill alone. God's good design is for us to live the Christian life and to live out the mission he has given us in community. So whether we are thinking of our own sanctification and growth, our own enduring of the trials of life, the difficult things we face, whether we're thinking of evangelism and discipleship, our worship of God, these are all things that we must do together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we must break free of the individualistic, consumer-driven mentality. If you are looking for a religion that will require nothing of you, 
you have come to the wrong place. While it's true that we contribute nothing whatsoever to our salvation, that we can do nothing to save ourselves, but are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we must also recognize that becoming a disciple of Christ means that we commit to him completely. There can be no fence-sitting, no wishy-washiness, no half-hearted devotion. As Jesus says in Luke 14, 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Christianity is the path of the cross. We are called to die to ourselves daily. We are to follow Christ in laying down everything. The true message of the gospel is not easy believism. It is not your best life now. You have not come to a God who requires nothing of you. But I hope for each of us that if we are asked as Jesus' disciples did, will you also then leave after hearing the hard sayings of Jesus? May we answer with the apostles, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have a role to play. We have duties to our brothers and sisters in Christ. You are a member of the body, and for the body to function properly, every member must do its part. So brothers and sisters, if you have been attending uh, but have not yet committed to a particular local body, I ask you, what are you waiting for? If you're waiting to find the perfect church, I have some unfortunate news for you. That's not going to happen. And it's been well said that even if you could find the perfect church, you better not join it since your joining would simply mess it up. Now, in God's kind providence, there are many faithful yet imperfect churches that would be great for you to join. So if you are a follower of Christ, then obey your Lord and be baptized into his body. Serve, pray for, build up, strengthen, encourage, sing with, and contribute to your local body. God's mission for the redemption of his fallen creation has the church at its center. Join a local body and join in the world-conquering expansion of the kingdom of God. Amen.